Hello and welcome to episode two of season five of the Music Works podcast. I'm Katie Beardsworth, director and founder of Polyphony Arts, and today I'm delighted to welcome Samir Savant, who has come from an amazing career in classical music to his current role as chief executive of St George's Bristol, one of the country's most prestigious and innovative provincial music venues. So stay with us to hear Samir's insights on classical music today and his work promoting diversity and minority representation in the industry. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Music Works is generously supported by Allianz Musical Insurance, the UK's number one musical instrument insurer, serving the music community since 1960. If these difficult times have shown us anything, it's that life can be unpredictable. Allianz offer cover for all types of instruments and musical equipment, protecting you against accidental damage, loss, theft and more. Plus, every Allianz music policy now includes free legal assistance and support, so you can protect yourself both as a musician and in your personal life. Now, if the worst happens, you won't be left out of pocket and you can get back to doing what you do best. To find out more about this and Allianz's special online offer of two months free cover, go to alliancemusic.co.uk. Allianz, proud to be the insurer of choice for over 70,000 musicians. And now let's go over to the Music Works studio where Samir is waiting to talk to us. Hello, Samir, welcome. Morning, Katie. Delighted to be here. So we have today uh, Samir Savant, Chief Executive at St George's Bristol, um, and we're going to talk about um, your career um, and in particular your work on um, addressing the lack of representation in classical music. So thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Would you like to start by telling us a bit about yourself and your career? Absolutely. So I've come to Bristol. I've been chief executive here at St George's uh, since the 1st of September 2021. So I'm only four four months in post. Um, And I've come to Bristol after 30 years in London, 20 of which were working in the arts. I started my arts career at English National Opera um, in a fundraising role and then spent the next um, kind of 15 years or so in fundraising and marketing roles, including at Shakespeare's Globe, the Royal Academy of Arts and latterly at the Royal College of Music Um, and then I went into general management I was running the London Handel Festival as festival director for the last five years and then was approached about this job Um, I am a classically trained singer I've been singing since I was a boy and then I was a choral scholar at St John's Cambridge uh, and I still sing in choirs I I was um, uh, running and founded and running my own uh, chamber choir in in London and I've joined choirs in in Bristol now as well so singing is still a very active part of my life and really um, helps me with my well-being but also is a real insight into how you know classical music really does make a difference in people's lives yeah absolutely so you have that that insight both on the on the um chief executive level in music and also on the ground um still doing it which is wonderful (laughs) not often it happens that way is it speak from my own experience of really struggling to keep actually singing (laughs) alongside everything else 
And also arriving in Bristol, you know, a new city, um, like singing has really anchored me in my local communities. And, and you know, some of the friendships I'm developing are primarily through, through, through choirs, the choirs that I'm in. And, you know, and it's been the case with my choir in London. You know, I've, I've some of these people I've been singing with for, for kind of nearly 20 years now. And I've sung at their weddings. I've sung at their children's christenings. I've, you know, all, all, all this kind of thing. So it really singing is a very very collegiate activity and really bright binds people together and particularly in lockdown when we've not been able to sing I think the vast majority of singers have realized how much they do actually miss it and how important it is for their physical and mental well-being absolutely I think it's been it's been really sorely missed hasn't it I'm very glad that it's been able to start up again now so um well what a CV uh, <laughs> that's absolutely um great to hear and um and congratulations on the still pretty new role that you're <laughs> that you're occupying um so we've said that we're going to talk about lack of representation in classical music and i'd love to um to hear your perspective on this um you are of, of indian heritage yourself and um as you've just um uh, I'm curious to know what your experience has been both personally and now as an advocate for um, for increasing diversity in the industry. Sure. I mean, I, I've never really experienced any direct racism or any direct um, bias from that point of view. Obviously, classical music in general is 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 full of nice, well-meaning, liberal-minded people who want to be inclusive. Um, but there is this question of unconscious bias, and uh, when you know, um, you know, people coming out with comments like, "Oh." Um, you know, your English is very good, you know, or you're very articulate and all these kinds of things. And the kind of the loaded comments people make like that, and they're, they're, they're completely not in, intentionally racist or offensive. And I think these people that say this kind of thing would be horrified. Um, but the, the unconscious bias does creep in and we've got to be really careful in our industry, whether as performers or people working in administration and management, that we put... Um, building blocks in place to make sure we're not excluding people unconsciously from our discussions um, and something at St George's we've done we've recruited a, a new head of marketing and when we were in the recruitment process I, I discussed this with um, my head of HR here of taking out all the personal characteristics so the scrutiny panel that came to the decision about who we should interview didn't know anything they didn't know the person's name they didn't know their gender they didn't even know their educational background because people are still putting out adverts saying you know degree or equivalent required and why do you need a degree you know it, we're looking for professional experience I mean your degree becomes less and less relevant my degree is in modern languages I, I you know that has I haven't chosen my career I haven't built my career on my degree at all um, so there's a kind of inherent snobbery that people have to have a university education. Um, so, you know, at St. George's, we took all of that out. So literally all I was getting as someone that was deciding who to interview uh, was the person's work experience. Uh, and then we chose the candidates. Obviously, when it comes to face-to-face -face interviews, you do have to know their name and you will know their gender and ethnicity because you're going to be in the same room as them. Um, but uh, up until that point, and I would really encourage 
uh, arts organizations, classical music organizations in general, to really look at that. And the Association of British Orchestras, I know, has done a lot of work around unconscious bias and auditioning. You know, we we I went to a, an ABO conference and there were people from the States talking about blind auditioning and how that made a, a direct impact on things like gender and ethnicity almost immediately. Um, you know, because people people say, oh, I, I'm not biased, I'm not biased. But the minute you start introducing kind of blind testing and all this kind of thing, then then suddenly the numbers start to shift. Um, and I suppose my personal experience has always been, you know, of, of being the only black or brown face at so many meetings. In fact, entire conferences. Um, I, I've spoken at conferences before and looked out at a sea of white faces and, and really just feeling it's so lonely really and um the the number of leaders genuine leaders in the classical music industry from a black or minority ethnic background i can count on the fingers of two hands if not one um so you know the kind of the leadership programs that are in place the kind of mentoring and support because it's one thing to to be in a position but to be sustained and supported in that position i think is really important um and i put my money where my, my mouth is you know i i have spoken and written about this because it's not just classical music but um, my other industry has been the fundraising industry and I've specialised in major gifts and that's notoriously kind of white middle class um, you know expectation um, and you know I, I, I'm, I'm very happy to chat on things like this it's great that people just recognize that it is an issue and that people like me are willing to speak about it and try to do something about it but rather than just talking about it i'm trying to put my money where my mouth is and not just living and breathing the practice as i've just outlined with our recruitment processes but also i'm a trustee of the harrison parrot foundation harrison parrot the uh, the classical music agency and they've set up as foundation specifically to try and redress some of the issues or address some of the issues around um, I mean, it's getting better from the performing side of things. And we had um, Chinecker here performing uh, at St. George's uh, last autumn. And obviously the kind of initiatives they're embarking are, are wonderful. And I think of, of, of orchestras like the Southbank Symphonia as well, who played a lot in the London Handel Festival and looking at the way that they're embracing diversity and looking at their pool of performers. You know, I think it's getting better on the performance side, but it's falling behind on the management side because that getting the first step into um, artists management, um, you know, concert, concert management, that kind of thing is notoriously difficult. And there's so much of a kind of um, who your mum and dad know, who do you know, who are your networks? And if you're from that out, outside of that world, like I was, it's very difficult to get in. And I actually ended up doing a, a postgraduate uh, diploma at City University in arts management, and I had to do a placement. Um, and it's from that placement that I kind of was encouraged to go for this job at English National Opera. It was one of those Guardian jobs in the days that people looked in the Guardian for jobs. And, you know, for someone like me, an outsider, someone that didn't have connections, um, I even thought twice about applying for the job because I thought, you know, the experience of going for Guardian jobs is you never even got an interview or even a, any kind of acknowledgement. You know, they only contacted you if you're successful for an interview. Um, but, you know, I was really encouraged by my placement host at the time to go for this job. And I did and I got it. And then, you know, it's it's gone on from there, really. That's, that's, that's a huge amount in, in what you said, actually, that's um, 
uh, tied in with um, the, the last couple of podcast episodes we've done. Um, in, in, interestingly, we did one about recruitment. So we do a lot of recruitment at Polyphony um, Arts, which is my, my company that this is, podcast is part of. And um, we, we also try to have an innovative approach to it. And um, one thing we haven't done is, um, is take off identifying characteristics at shortlisting. So that's a really interesting thing that I, I would definitely... Um, like to try um we have done some other things that we <laughs> think have, been, have had very interesting outcomes as well and i agree with you about the the career the the degree snobbery by the way and it's been it's been interesting for us to see how many people put so much valuable cv space into things like their a level and gcse results and you just think i actually don't i genuinely don't care whether you have them at all anyway um as an aside <laughs> um uh, but also then subsequently we la- the last episode that was just released um last week at the point that we're recording this was about um uh, lead- applying for leadership positions and taking up leadership positions as um a minority uh, person effectively which is so we had three uh, women on the podcast talking about experiences of um of either going for leadership positions or supporting um, women and people of minoritized ethnicities to apply and be supported throughout the process of of this. And I'd just like to, if it's okay with you, to ask more about what your experience has been. So you've you've already mentioned that to get into the arts world, you did um, you know postgraduate study and an internship. Was that usual at that time? Um, I, I think it was studies. because yeah, yeah the, the, I mean back then I, so I did my postgrad at City University and at the time City University was the one of a very small handful of universities across the UK offering some kind of practical arts management um, mm. uh, you know p- postgrad qualification and um, and now there's a proliferation of these courses so you can I think you can do it at undergraduate level as yeah. well but well, it's it's that kind of you know our business is built on connections and all this kind of thing and what I found is you make your own connections you know when, when I'm speaking to young people now who are like how do I get into the business I don't have you know, I don't think I've got the connections, you know, things like LinkedIn and Twitter are a gift because they're all free. And, and I found that people in our industry, the classical music industry, are usually very generous with their time, but you have to approach them in the right way. Um, and, you know, try and, you know, it, uh, try and find out a bit about them and what, what makes them tick. You know, if, if someone is going to email, uh, send me a, a LinkedIn message directly, um, and clearly it doesn't really know who I am, where I've come from, I'm less likely to respond positively. But if they've done a bit of, if they've taken time to, to research me and say, I'm really interested in this aspect of your career and I'd love to talk to you more about it, then of course I'm going to respond more positively to that. So, you know, you do have to be proactive in this game. It's not like just kind of sitting back and waiting for it all to arrive. Um, but, but you know, it, it is, it's made more difficult if, your parents or your family or your professional network um, isn't quite helping you get to where you want to. And there, and you've got to do what I did then and build your own network. And, um, you know, I, I've gained a lot of confidence through my singing just because I, I do quite a lot of solo work as well. And just holding a room when you're singing a solo and having everyone kind of listening to you um, has really given me the confidence to, in public speaking, certainly, and to to kind of hold a room when I'm addressing a conference professionally. Um, because again, there's a kind of a again, it's this unconscious bias thing that you're you're in a room full of white privilege, is what the term is, isn't it? And 
you're already on the back back foot because you turn up i've heard i've read this so many times when other people in my position are talking about this and not just in classical music but across the board in in a corporate environment as well when you turn up and the first thing you've got to do is take a deep breath and say to yourself you belong here and other people don't have to do that and we're having to do it if you're in a, a kind of minority and i'm i'm a double minority if you like because i'm an out gay man as well so there's kind of potential homophobia in all of this thankfully not so much in the classical music industry but again it, it is a lot of unconscious bias when people kind of especially with the move to bristol people saying you know oh have you come here with your family and you know there's all kinds of and of course you know, gay, lesbians and gays and do have families. And so it's not that biased a question. But in, in the day, you know, 20 years ago, when I was first starting in the industry, when gay marriage wasn't legal, and people would ask, are you married? And they were they were assuming that I was living a heterosexual lifestyle, all that kind of thing. You know, it, it's just, it's all loaded in there. And, and people like me are constantly having to struggle against those stereotypes of who we are. Yeah, there's a, a sort of, um, there's a sense of belonging that comes from being instantly understood. And if you don't have that and you have to explain very basic information about yourself that other people don't have to explain, yeah. it just, uh, it's such an extra huge layer of like, effort, isn't it? And, um, yeah, indeed. Yeah. yeah. Um, absolutely. And how does this, so what, can you tell us a bit about how you've moved from, you know, from that internship position through to being in the leadership <laughs> position, what the route was? Um, I mean, it's a zigzag route. I mean, we're working in a creative industry. And again, I, I'm, I meet young people. I'm asked to speak at these kind of things to encourage young people into the profession. And, and so many of them want certainty. And the one thing, you know, that I've never had, and certainly COVID in the last two years has taken that away. Um, but, you know, creative organisations, classical music organisations are nothing if not um, imaginative, full of imagination and resilience. You know, musicians I've worked with are really resilient and have responded incredibly positively to this awful situation that we've been in for the last two years, trying to find creative ways of making their art, but not having to be in a physical space. So a lot of people turning to kind of digital and online, um, which is just, it's just been terrific and really inspiring and also pointing the way forward. I kind of think that COVID-19, that one of the favours it's done us, it's done, it's been a horrific experience for so many people and people have suffered personal tragedy and loss of income and all kinds of horrific things. Um, but it it is pointing us into the rest of the 21st century. You know, we haven't really harnessed like digital technologies in the way that we're now seeing. And it's kind of, um, you know, across the board again, you know, in, in, a, in a not for profit and a profit making environment, people have been saying that um, it's shortened the kind of um, development plan for, for a lot of, a lot of these projects would just take longer and it's kind of concertinaed everything into this just these two short years and and propelled projects way into the future and if you think about mass vaccination you know if, if we'd spoken about that three years ago before covid people would have said this is absolutely not going to work it's not possible 
and now you know to turn around this global vaccination in a in a matter of weeks and months is just extraordinary and and i think it's propelling society into the 21st century and and uh, you know making us all reevaluate our lives what's important to us you know what matters to us you know reshaping our lives getting the balance of our lives um you know better calibrated all these things really Mm. and what do you think classical music has to learn from being propelled into the 21st century well, um, I, I think uh, my challenge really to classical musicians and, and to people like me in management is, um, uh, you know, uh, wh what are you going to do differently? What have you learned about your audiences primarily in the pandemic? And what are you going to do differently coming out of the pandemic? I'm sorry, I, I realised I didn't actually answer your original question, like from internship to CEO. <laughs> Um, I've forgotten about that, but yeah, I do. I would I, like I, to know. I was on a but I, I think yeah. the important thing to say is to to have a, a forward momentum. So to always be yeah. challenging yourself to kind of not, you know, to, to think every. I mean, to take this opportunity in January when we traditionally make our New Year's resolutions to think about your career and like, are you where you want to be? Does anything need to change? Um, and and but not to not to be. Uh, driven off course if things happen like covid like redundancies that that kind of um make you have to shift gear and um you know I, i've been quite creative i've been opportunistic in terms of looking at things that are coming up and grabbing them by both hands so i'm definitely a say yes to the mess person um and but i've also been aware of like okay, these are the building blocks for my career. So, you know, I went into fundraising from my course at City, knowing that fundraising, there's a shortage of experienced people in the profession. And even 20 years on, there continues to be. So I knew that this was a good, you know, and a lot of CEOs in the arts have great fundraising experience. And, you know, I spend a lot of time here at St. George's, even though I have a great fundraising team, I'm still doing a lot of the glad handing of the donors. Um, and and you know um the leader of an organization has to dedicate a certain amount of their time um to 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 fundraising and meeting donors and saying thank you and kind of preparing projects to be fundraising ready really um so it never goes away and the way that the arts are funded in this country it it it's going towards less and less subsidy and more and more uh, private investment and philanthropy so you know this is not gonna go away so people really need to get get with the program the other thing i would say is like on the volunteer side of things it's really important that people have a, a very broad um range of experiences to offer and i think this is where people from minority groups are doing themselves a disservice because um the culture of volunteering um in in minority communities is really strong it's just something um you know I, i've read research on this that you know things like fundraising and philanthropy and minority groups ethnic minority groups is really strong because there's a, a tradition of that in particularly in um african caribbean and south asian communities um and my my parents for example when they retired you know, my dad was an architect my mother was a, a medical social worker but they both became involved in the lions club which is kind of rotary fundraising and they belonged to the one in north london it was 95 percent asian so they were doing it as a social thing but they were also fundraising at the same time um, and they wouldn't regard themselves as fundraisers but 
to, to collectively, they were raising tens of thousands of pounds. Um, so I think it's really important that people look at the broader range of experiences. And there's such a push to try and get young trustees on boards as well. Mm, um, yeah. So if you just Google the words young trustee, you come up with a number of agencies that are trying to con connect passionate young people with boards. So, you know, get onto a board, get non-exec experience, get the wider perspective of things. And that's how you build your your connections and your your Rolodex, if you like. So were you so did you have a CEO ship in your mind when you took your first when you went into fundraising then? Um, I think general management certainly um i want i didn't want to um be in and fundraising is an incredibly rewarding and fulfilling career so i could happily have been a fundraiser in the arts for the rest of my days but i i did there was this kind of nagging thing because at the beginning of this i mean the whole reason for doing the uh the postgrad diploma as well but you don't have to do a diploma that was just a um, a structure for me then to kind of launch yeah. forward. Well, I think that's interesting because I've noticed that in the recruitment that I'm doing now that more and more people have um, degrees in music management. There's a There are a few masters in music management mm. that I've seen come up. I've just done two quite big rounds of recruitment and I found these um, postgraduate uh, well, I think it's an undergrad and a, an undergrad and a postgrad um, option. I've seen them all the time, and we had a discussion in our in our team, and it was on the podcast that we did about this because I graduated in two thousand and nine, and this was it wasn't a th lots of my kind of peers are music managers, and I'm a music manager, and I've never we never did anything like that. Certainly, in, in our sort of collective experience, um, and we feel that it's quite possibly a sign of the times in terms of the way higher education is going is that I, whether rightly or wrongly people feel that they need a further qualification so I was curious to hear that you did this um you know in a previous you know um when you were starting your career because this is obviously something that isn't just a brand new thing right now it's and you know there was obviously a time when this was needed previously yeah well. I think uh, it, it's kind of separating out education for education's sake which is often yeah. at undergraduate level and when you, yeah. you, you pursue your your passions and your academic interests so I studied languages people study history art you know archaeology and anthropology whatever mm. um but then in terms of more of a vocational thing uh, I mean I I welcome these courses I mean they are yeah. leading to a professionalization of our sector and you know, uh, I don't think it's, it's an excluding thing to say that we're, you know, you're looking at people who are investing in their own career. But you don't, you don't need to, you know, you could do a part-time course alongside working, for example. But the the the, the tricky thing for for me, uh, having come through classical music largely and fundraising, is the people trying to get into the jobs and lots of people kind of that have no really relevant experience but but they say oh but I love classical music and I play in an orchestra and I've been playing since I was a child but how do you prove that you're actually committed to the sector how do you prove that you really want to build your career in the sector and for me if you've been volunteering if you sit on a board that is a, a allied to a classical music organization that's all demonstrating to your potential employer that you are fully committed and that you don't have to have a degree for that. So, mm. but, but, you know, the more you can demonstrate that you really committed this sector and that you've got interesting things to say, uh, I think the better it is. Yeah, that's great advice. Thank you. Um, 
so how did you so i think i'm particularly um interested then um in the route to leadership position just to come back to that because i have certainly been <coughs> noticing that there is to get into the arts so this is my perspective of like an arts career right so as i said graduated about uh, whenever that was 12 years ago 13 years ago and um i have found i found it very easy to find uh entry-level arts jobs and i found it a bit easy to find like the next level um of kind of like instead of being you know like admin assistant you might be like marketer or fundraiser or something like that and then going through to more anything more than like a sort of team leadership position suddenly if like the, if this uh, we're on audio but if i have a very broad range of like the entry level jobs the, the the triangle is very very steep isn't it would you agree mm. um and i just i suppose i just wondered what your experience was of this you mentioned that you were approached about the um st george's job at what point you know for the benefit of our listeners at <laughs> what point did that become uh, you know something that happened sure sure i mean i suppose it's um it's keeping your it, it's my kind of saying yes to the mess approach which is kind of like taking every opportunity really um talking to people so if if there's a particular organization you admire or a particular leader in 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 the classical music sector that you admire try and reach out to them and this is why linkedin is a gift because mm. anyone you know worth their salt um that wants to have a, a public persona and at this level it, you know it, it, your, your personal and your private personas become blended and you're out there all the time so I've had to become more active on Twitter because you know I, I just need to be better known really for what I'm doing particularly in a new city when I'm moving from London to Bristol um, so to establish myself in the kind of wider community in Bristol and establish, you know, establish my name and the name of St. George's. Um, so, you know, things like LinkedIn and Twitter are a gift because you can reach these people very easily. Whereas, you know, pre-LinkedIn, pre-Twitter, you'd have to have their email or their phone number, or you'd have to have an introduction to them. You don't need that anymore. So that's, that's a gift. So I would, um, I would kind of do your homework and really think about, um, what you want to be where you want to be and are there people doing jobs that are similar to what the kind of job you want to do uh and then reach out to them um i've been very lucky in having mentors at various stages of my career and i also run a national mentoring program for the institute of fundraising's cultural sector network which is a special interest group for culture um so i'm you know again i'm putting my money where my mouth is and encouraging young you know younger well younger in terms of career rather than age, um, less experienced fundraisers and matching them with more established fundraisers as kind of a mentoring thing. So, um, you know, it, that's kind of um, uh, all, all there, really. And um, I, I think that's the thing, trying to get to your, you're right, that kind of entry, well, for me, entry level is a real barrier, just trying to get that first job. But once you've got that first job, don't kind of sit on your laurels if you're ambitious. I mean, some people just want to, you know, have, you know, have a relatively, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, kind of like just have the job that they're having and they just want the certainty of that job. And that's great. But if you want to progress and have a, you know, 
maybe get to a CEO position, then you really need to work at it from the beginning. And and not in a kind of like, oh, you know, who are the five people I need to connect with today? Not in a, because I'm not that kind of person, but just have your ears and eyes open to opportunities. You know, if people approach you about being and getting involved in organizations, whether it's paid or unpaid, look at each opportunity and look at the value of that opportunity to you and to your career. And, and, and I really encourage that. Oh, that's fab. Thank you. That's really great advice. And I love say yes to the mess. I've written that down as a as a mantra for a future week, I think. <laughs> Definitely a good uh, a good thing. Um great. So I just wanted to um ask maybe one final question about um we've we've talked about your career and the really invaluable experiences that you've shared with our listeners. So thank you so much for that. Um do you have any sort of final statement or advice about the um you know about the general picture in terms of representation in classical music and the work that you're doing with the Harrison Parrot Foundation and yeah I, I think um so Harrison Parrot Foundation are looking at kind of barriers to success and, and working with um you know music education agencies like the Triborough Hub in London to create the opportunities for young people to access classical music and think about classical music as a career um and doing amazing work in that. Um, I mean, on that theme, um, uh, one thing that I'm really keen on, which St. George's does, and one of the things that really attracted me to the job here is, is our learning and participation work. And being a singer, you know, I, I've sung since I was a boy, and there's no doubt that the light went on at that point. Um, you know, I, I probably would have been successful in the career, another career that I would might have chosen, like being an accountant or being a lawyer. Um, but in terms of working in the creative industries where, you know, there's such a lack of representation for minority groups, um, you know, it, it was kind of singing as a child that really kind of made me passionate about music and, and just have that impact to, to embed music in, in my heart and my mind, really, for the rest of my life. And if I don't sing now for any length of time, it feels as if I'm missing a limb. I, I just have to sing, which is why, you know, I, I just joined instantly the, all these digital choirs that started up uh, when COVID, were, you know, when we, we weren't allowed to sing together in real life through, through COVID. Um, yeah, and, and one of the projects St George's does, and I was just speaking on BBC Radio Bristol yesterday, about on, on Sunday about this, is Cosmos is our children's community chorus based in Knoll West in South Bristol, where traditionally St George's doesn't engage. And, um, you know, a, a music leader goes into the, the school every week, it's an after school club. Um, and then the kids build their confidence through singing. And then they were singing at Bristol Zoo just before Christmas. And we provided a coach for all the parents and carers to come with the kids to Bristol Zoo. So often these children are going to areas of the city that they've never been to before, but they, they have the opportunity through their song and they're able to share their passion and their joy of singing with a wider audience. And that's just so important, I think. So. I think it's really important, um, you know, in, in terms of investment, we really need to look at the audiences of the future and building the audiences of the future and not just asking a whole load of young people to get free tickets for a concert and just sit there passively. They need to be taking part. They need to own it. They need to feel it's theirs. Yeah, absolutely. It just struck me that so much over this interview, we've been talking about music that takes you places in various ways, takes you to different cities, takes you to a love of music, to want to make it your career. Um, you know, takes you to the zoo. <laughs> <laughs> That's really lovely. Thank you. 
Great. Well, it's been really wonderful to chat to you. You've imparted such great um, sort of words of advice throughout this interview, really. I know that those of our listeners who are interested in working in the arts and um, are interested in, in their career development will really take a lot from what you've said. Um, do you have any, any closing words or thoughts? Well, just to say it's a really exciting time for the creative industries um, and it's, uh, you know, it's increasingly becoming a portfolio career. So I worked at the Royal College of Music for six years as their director of fundraising and the music graduates were, they were being encouraged to think of themselves as musical entrepreneurs. Mm. And, and you know, you, you don't kind of wait by the phone for the phone call from the Berlin Phil to offer you the second flute position you know uh, you have to go out and make your own career and yeah. increasing on the management side of things as well so many of my friends uh, have multiple commitments and multiple kind of businesses and and work uh, situations going on and and in a way that can be quite challenging and quite exhausting but equally very exhilarating and very flexible so at a time you know, I know I know a lot of performers that do other things as well. So at a time maybe when your performance schedule is less busy, you can up another side of your career and vice versa. And you can be also flexible in terms of the calendar, the arc of the year and the arc of, you know, a three year cycle, say, uh, or five year cycle. So I'd really encourage people to think about varied things to do. And if I were to have my time again or if I were coming into classical music now in 20. 22 my career would probably be less linear and more supposed seemingly fragmented but actually these kind of fragments all kind of fit together and make a magical whole so you know um i, I you know do, do you think about kind of freelance uh, and part-time things alongside voluntary and paid things mixing those two together as well wonderful i wholeheartedly agree <laughs> Oh, thank you so much, Samir, for taking time out of your busy schedule at St George's to talk to us. You've had an extraordinary musical career and it's always a privilege to welcome musicians like you who are making their mark in leadership roles. You've also given us a fascinating glimpse into the world of one of our busiest and most vibrant venues in the South West. But what I know will really resonate with our listeners is your experience as someone of Indian heritage in what is still a very much white-dominated world and your work promoting diversity and better representation in the industry. It's so important not only to hear your insights, but to see people like you heading music organisations and finding themselves in positions where they can bring about the changes that the industry urgently needs. Samir, thank you again for talking to Music Works today. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Music Works podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe, check out our other great episodes and even better, leave us a review. You can also sign up to our mailing list at www.polyphonyarts.com forward slash mailing dash list for updates and news about what Polyphony Arts is up to for all you classical music folk out there. You can find more information in the show notes as well. Meanwhile, I'm Katie Beardsworth and I look forward to sharing with you the next great episode of Music Works. Music Works is generously supported by Alliance Musical Insurance the UK's number one musical instrument insurer. Alliance Music Insurance, serving the music community since 1960, proud to be the insurer of choice for over 70,000 musicians. Music Works is a Polyphony Arts production. Thank you for listening.